in, come in quickly, quickly. <laughs> Who are you expecting? Oh, it's been a day. Uh, there's been a queues of like 50 colleagues all wanting to speak to me. Um, it's ridiculous business to uh, trying to make me stop doing the podcast because of some controversial things I apparently said, according to some people in the roundup of Jubilee satire and some of the opinions about the institution of monarchy, which have been attributed to me by fools. Oh, gosh. So 50 colleagues think you should stop doing the podcast. I guess you're going to have to stop doing the podcast. Well, perhaps, but I've got another little idea. What's that? Well, I could say I'm going to stop and then just not stop. How could you just not stop? Well, I could say that I'll stop when I've found a new host to take over, which won't be until at least October. And then in the meantime, I'll just stay on as a caretaker host. And if anyone asks, I'll just reassure them that I have left, even though I will still be here. That actually could work. So you'd have to make a statement. What would that statement be? I'm leaving the podcast. It has been the honour of my life to serve. No, it won't be Won't be that. It won't be humble like that. I'll just probably say nothing that's ever happened on this podcast has had anything to do with me except for the successes of the podcast. Um, so we've been the most... I've been the most listened to podcast in the world, redefined the way people talk about satire, um, overseen the fastest vaccine rollout in the world and also... If you back me on this, I will make you the chief editor and scriptwriter. How does that sound? Chief editor and scriptwriter? Yeah. Okay, I unequivocally support you as podcaster Joe Wall. Okay. Stand by you no right. matter well, what. Well, let's just get past all these distractions and get on with the job of podcasting. <laughs> Hello? It's me again. Hello, um, I've just chief had... editor and scriptwriter. Yes. Had any thoughts about cutting those taxes yet? I've decided that in good conscience I can't actually stay on as chief editor and scriptwriter and I'm going to have to resign. I never supported you and condemn everything you said in the Jubilee special and throughout your tenure as podcast host. Well, that comes as quite the surprise, you, you <laughs> fucking snake. Um, okay, well... Um, gonna have to think about that um I'll, I'll do the statement um and good luck being chief editor and scriptwriter any longer than october when my replacement comes in you sneaky little so-and-so i'm not listening to you anymore because i just need to post onto youtube tiktok instagram and twitter my campaign video to be the single ghost <laughs> of smith and smith talk about satire. <laughs> did he do that I thought it was just Sunak who did that. Gosh, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm drawing on various... Ins- mm. There's quite a lot of inspiration to draw on, I mean, from the clusterfuck that is mm. uh, Westminster, July 2022. Yes, it's, so, been, it's been fun times, There's some good news it? for listeners, though, which is that you're not actually leaving the podcast. Yeah. On this occasion, we're not going to have to contact a backup Joe, um, and I'm not quitting the podcast either. Well, you know, yeah. Yeah, or okay. taking it over single-handedly after resigning no. as chief editor. Okay, so that's good. So what we were actually doing there... It's a little bit of satire. A little bit of satire. Yeah. yeah. A little satirical conversation. Now that that is over, what yeah. is this profoundly unapologetic podcast that has stopped but is still going on? This is the podcast that is Smith and War Talk About Satire podcast, in which I, Joe War, and you, Adam Smith, talk about satire, its form, function, future, history, 
and uh, nothing else. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The film function future and, and history, history of, of satire. satire. Brilliant. And in this episode, we're going to be speaking later to a guest, Professor Robert Fidian, uh, author of many things, but including the book Satire and the Public Emotions, which came out in 2019. Uh, we've been reading that and we're going to talk to him about that. And in a happy coincidence... A the happy <laughs> satire, <laughs> I am. Okay. Uh, satire has actually been quite the platform for public emotions at yes. the time of preparing this episode. Uh, because I think it's fair to say the last few years, last few days, last few years, but also the last few days have been quite unprecedented in terms of both political change and the level of response from the public and professional satirists in terms of processing and charting these yeah. days. Yes, it's been it's been chaotic, fascinating, appalling, and satirical all at once. But, yeah. but enough about the podcast. <laughs> now let's talk about politics. So yeah, let, should we should we talk through it for um, mm. for some of our international listeners? Yeah, and, and also listeners in the future. So I thought mm. what we could do is we could talk each other through sort of yeah. what happened politically and literally. And then for each phase of the last few days, mm. reflect then on, on the satirical responses. That's a good idea. Yeah. The first time, I mean, obviously there's been lots of occasions where things look like they're not going well for the Prime Minister. Mm. But in recent weeks, the first time where things seemed to be going quite awry was hashtag blowjoe. Yeah. Um, which is a story that was broken by satirical magazine the private eye mm-hmm. and did you read the article where this occurred no it was very well done so the the story was about how uh, the prime minister's wife carrie had been attempting to had had filed various injunctions to have a story not run it ran in one print edition but then never ran online and the story was that during the pandemic some aides walked in on the prime minister in a compromising position with uh, his his wife but i think it was well not it was his wife, wife then. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and i think um, mistress was it even Yes, and yeah. I think he was still married to someone yeah. else, wasn't he? So the article yeah. is kind of very playfully like, so why was this injunction filed and what's so wrong with just being in an uncompromising position? And then at the mm. end of it... It's I like think it, it was a compromising position, not an uncompromising... Oh, sorry, that, sorry yeah. is it An uncompromising position would be if you were like standing there <laughs> wagging your finger and saying, I won't compromise. Yeah, it yeah. would be the conservative power stance where they're yeah, rated yeah, to the floor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was. It said that it was, it was an embarrassing, compromising situation, but then the article goes... Uh, but the injunction was to stop anyone revealing that what was in fact happening was uh, oral sex mm. and that no newspaper ever shall mention that they had oral sex and we certainly won't be mentioning in the private eye that it was oral sex. Very good. So they revealed that it was oral sex and then that there was a couple of days of hashtag blowjoe and all mm. sorts of jokes. Did any any jokes in that period about uh, old spaffer? Because <laughs> uh, it seems so long ago. I can't remember. You can't eat an apple. Sorry, <laughs> You're like David Archer <laughs> slurping his coffee and eating lemon drizzle cake and all the viewers right in. Sorry. Have you quite finished? I have eaten my forbidden fruit. Yeah, yeah you are. Yeah. You're, you're not Adam, you're Eve. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I just completely forgot myself. and uh, <laughs> forgot, I forgot. Yeah, well, it didn't work for Eve and it's not going to work for no, you. No, no. It is easy to forget sometimes that we actually... Unforgivable. It's unforgivable. It's easy to forget that we actually recorded sometimes. And yeah. I just think we're having a conversation. But yeah, sorry, yeah, I shouldn't have eaten that conversation. Apple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it seems like a really long time ago. Yeah. And uh, I, I actually can't remember it was a BJ blowjob it's a gift isn't it his initials of BJ yeah. he's done that yeah. I was thinking earlier that's probably why he did it the initials of Gordon Brown are GB isn't that good I, don't, yeah. I wish people had made Team more of that in 2010 yeah, yeah. But, um, and Tony Blair is TB mm, make of that I can what see why they uh, kept that under their hats 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so there was the blowjob stuff. Mm. And then that led seamlessly into the Pincher affair. Yeah. So what's all that about? So Boris Johnson had appointed Chris Pincher as his deputy chief whip, which is a position of it with a certain level of like pastoral responsibility mm. as well as whipping. Which yeah. is not, <laughs> it's an interesting proof, isn't it? Um, despite uh, a fairly well documented history of allegations of inappropriate behaviour behavior by said Chris Pincher. He'd quit a week earlier after being accused of groping two men in a private gentleman's club. Um, and people began to ask why he'd been appointed in the first place, given that he'd already resigned from the Whip's office in 2017 for similar reasons. Former Chief of Staff Dominic Cummings of Bernard Castle fame helpfully provided the media with an anecdote about how Boris Johnson used to refer to the Deputy Whip as pincher by name, pincher by nature, which is quite telling. Mm-hmm. So mm. the uh, this was recognised as, or, or said to be, like a, another chronic example of mm. poor judgement. And, and and lies as well because he said and got numerous people on doing the media around saying that he didn't know he had no idea um, he wasn't aware and then it was that he he was aware but he'd forgotten that he was aware so he was still unaware and then it was I think Dominic Raab had been on the Today programme and BBC Breakfast saying um, he wasn't aware and then five minutes later they had Will Quince on saying mm-hmm. he definitely was aware mm-hmm. and that's when that week went really chaotic yes. wasn't it yeah because simultaneously almost simultaneously he was summoned to a hearing to discuss his relationship with KG, former KGB agent and now Russian oligarch uh, Lebedev yeah and a similar thing happened where he kept Just saying while he was on holiday wasn't it yeah. yeah so he was foreign secretary at the time and the accusation was that he met with Lebedev without anybody else there which is a Obviously not great for national security and all co- compromising in all manner of ways and, mm. and in breach of policy. And in the hearing, Boris Johnson says that he didn't do this, he doesn't think he did this, he's sure he didn't do this, and then that he did do it. Yeah. At which point one of his aides hands him a bit of paper. Have you seen that clip? Yeah. It's quite funny because the guy hey, just casually hands him this paper, then Boris is like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so pincher by name, pincher by nature, and also meeting Lebedev without aides, Russian oligarch, yeah. former KGB agent. And Not that's even good. without party gate wallpaper, mm. breaking lockdown, mm-hmm. all the rest of it. Um, and the fact that, you know, it's a very febrile time in the UK with the cost of living crisis, etc. Mm-hmm. So everything and just kind of came to a head for them. Yeah, and I think the festering shit. issue of Owen Patterson as well didn't mm. do any favour. So this was where Owen Patterson was basically accepting money from lobbyists, wasn't he? And, and all yeah. sorts of backhanders. And when he was in breach of ministerial code Boris Johnson just changed the rule says that he wasn't so all of that is bad and it seemed to be coming to a head and then we had the day of resignations so who went first Rishi Sunak or Sajid Javid I'm not sure I think it was Sajid Javid and then about 10 minutes later Rishi Sunak Michael Gove went to tell Boris Johnson that he should resign and Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson fired him Mm -hmm. Um, and pretty much everyone seemed to be quite suddenly gone over Mm -hmm. a period of 24 hours Mm -hmm. except Nadine Doris, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Liz Truss, Spaffer, Dominic Raab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's 50 resignations in 40 hours from all levels of government, and then we've yeah, Michelle Donnellan resigned after 36 hours in her new post. Yeah. What did what did she become? Education minister. Yeah. I think from um, universities. And I remember Emily Maitlis pointed out in a tweet that went viral that at this point, 50 resignations in, there were now not enough people left in, in government to fill the posts, uh, which had become empty. So that's... What's a lot of churn? Yeah, so that is a lot of churn. So that was the churn. 
But I thought we could talk about uh, how the world reacted to this. Because mm. I think the extent of comedic and satirical commentary from professional and amateur satirists alike, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. Or, or, like the, or the extent to which it was um, embedded in everything. Yeah. Like, you know, you couldn't watch a news report without the Benny Hill theme playing in the background. Those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, they really got um, that everywhere, didn't they? So Bye-bye, uh, Boris. One of the things that first tickled me was lots of tweets in the vein of... So after, after the morning after many of the resignations, when uh, someone tweeted, I can't believe we're living in a UK and a Britain right now that doesn't have a Secretary of State for levelling up. I know. Because <laughs> that had, it had always been even more farcical than it sounds, hasn't yeah. it? I mean, Michael Gove had done such a half-assed, like almost parodically shit mm. job of doing that. When he's like cut and paste a load of stuff about Wikipedia about what a civilization is in his report on levelling up um, yeah I think well, that's um, a tragedy we might, be, we might be fine without a Secretary of State for yeah, levelling up there's a chance that he was absolutely coked off his brain which you shouldn't be able to say but yeah. there's, loads of, there's loads of video footage of him in Parliament where he can yeah. barely stand up isn't there yeah. it's like it's, a, it's not even a secret it's um, so, so that was yeah I think that just spoke to the bathos not just of the situation of the resignations but just generally where we are yeah did you want to talk about grant tucker's tweets how yeah. many government resignations have we had in the last 24 hours yeah because again Shall i just I thought it? yeah let's play the clip hundred thousand and thirty four nine hundred seventy four thousand three hundred thousand and thirty four nine hundred seventy four thousand does it need clarifying that that's pretty patel talking it's pretty patel talking standing... i would say that that is mingling yes <laughs> We've had a lot of resignations in the last 24 hours. That's very good. So it's Pretty Patel standing doing one of the straight-to-TV COVID updates. There's a horrifying three-word slogan on her plate. Stay home this Easter. Stay home this Easter. We did. Um, Yeah, but then it's the fact that it's... So it's just reminding us all of the catastrophic fuck-up that was the pandemic response. But also, she can't say a number. (laughs) It's uh, it's neat, isn't it? Because it does take you back to all of the stuff that's happened and how serious it was. And that, you know, there she was standing there. Why did Patel do it? This is not normally her, was it, at the podium? No. But, you know, that they were standing there with the sign saying, stay home this Easter, whilst themselves palpably not. Mm. or at least staying home and inviting all their pals around yeah. but also it's a really big number which is a funny joke in relation to yeah. how many re- people had resigned yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so there's yeah very very good uh, very canny synthesis well congruity and incongruity mm. theory of laughter isn't it yeah there was the 10 Downing Street door meme uh, for a while which was uh, about that cat well, just the first meme was just various people standing in front of number 10 saying they were resigning. There was one mm. of Davina McCall saying it's eviction night, wasn't it? Yeah, there? quite a lot of, of Davina McCall kind of stuck onto the yeah. scene, weren't they? Um, and then Larry the Cat was the celebrity of the hour, mm. really, wasn't it? So, so there was a bit of footage. I don't know whether this is where it started or if this it was a response to or just complete happenstance. Mm. But there was a there's a report where uh, someone who's being interviewed about the resignations, they're... The reporter is standing outside Downing Street and the camera just zooms in on Larry the cat. This is the cat of 10 Downing Street and the commentary sounds like it's about the cat. It's a slow zoom. You know, it's so British and I don't even mean this in a good way. Mm. The way that everybody goes on about Larry the cat. Mm. I, I don't. I bet they've got like seventeen cats that look like that, mm. and they just um, throw well, them out of windows every now. I know and again. this is how memes work, but there was one of Larry the cat, and he'd been photoshopped into standing in front of a podium in front of Ten Downing Street, mm. and that was doing serious numbers. It was like the funniest thing people yeah. had ever seen. Like, what if Larry the cat resigns from being the Ten Downing Street cat? <laughs> yeah. 
There was another meme I appreciated, which was President of Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky. Uh, President Zelensky on the phone, and the caption was, the thing is, Boris, you've visited quite a few times already. Yeah. Which reminded me as well of, I don't know if you saw that private eye front cover of Zelensky meeting Boris Johnson. And I do remember that. Boris yeah. Johnson is saying, thank you for coming to my rescue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, so that was nice. That was neat. There was also a GIF or, or GIF of <laughs> Boris Johnson in a an actual piece of footage of Boris Johnson in a tug of war race, and he's oh and yeah, bugger Christ, bugger as he's refusing to fall over, and people were saying this is Boris Johnson with the keys to number ten. Oh, and lots of people were sharing journalism by Boris Johnson where he talked at length about. The, the kind of foolishness of leaders who won't realise when the game's up and just leave with some dignity and they cling on to every last shred of power and uh, that got got shared yeah. quite a lot. I mean, lot, if you change... So he's talking about Gordon Brown, but if you change the word Gordon Brown, who I think had a far more dignified tenure mm. uh, for Boris Johnson, it still works. It goes, the whole thing is unbelievable. As I write these words... Boris Johnson, you could say, is still holed up in Downing Street. He's like some illegal settler lashing himself to the radiator or like David Brent haunting the office in the excruciating episode where he refuses to acknowledge that he's been sacked. Where's the illegal settler? Uh, the Sinai Desert. In the Sinai Desert? The Sinai yeah, Desert, okay. yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Um, um, thanks for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> that, that did the rounds in the other one where he'd, he'd said, like, you know, it's a sad fact of leaders who've been deposed that they won't admit it and leave while they've still got any dignity. Yeah. And that did did the rounds a lot yeah and then there was that guy out there um on college green who mm. kept playing the benny hill music and bye bye boris yeah and, so, and, and susanna reed sort of started doing a bit of dancing too she's like oh somebody's playing oh <laughs> yes. yeah yeah i mean that was weird that i alluded to it already but that's where this kind of like satirical stuff bleeds into the actual historical record I mean mm. I know we've watched a few clips already but can we just watch the Benny Hill the, this yeah. hyperlink because Cause, cause this is very ev- funny <laughs> every time this is played for posterity now this is what it's going to sound absolutely. like absolutely a couple of things firstly we need to make sure that we keep the basic functions of government going uh, that's really important there are for example uh, no ministers in DfE at the moment that needs to be sorted out uh, secondly I think we need to try and select a new leader as quickly as we reasonably can and obviously uh, we need to make sure we make, make the correct choice uh, but we should do it in a reasonably quick time in terms of Boris saying on the convention is that the outgoing Prime Minister um, does carry on uh, that's what happened when uh, Theresa May left office is what happened when David Cameron left office and you know, given that as we get other things firstly it's uh, that's really important so yeah, as you say in documentaries they can't play that clip yeah without that will that. always be there I mean I was well actually we know they can mess with it can't because remember when Boris and Carrie Johnson were booed walking up the steps of St mm. Paul's for the Jubilee ceremony and initially the, it was clear there were absolutely loads of boos and when it was then it was kind of edited so that um, they were a bit quieter mm. um, I guess I guess you can just play around with the sound levels yeah. or something but yeah it um, it yeah. happened it was good there was a cartoon I appreciated by Matt Chorley which is of Michael Gove reaching over Boris Johnson to stab him in the back but in stabbing him in the back has also stabbed himself through the chest I just think it's a really farcical and Boris yeah. Michael Gove Matt Chorley's Michael Gove looks like a sex doll yes. doesn't he which yeah. uh, always makes it funnier uh, Nadine but, Doris came in for a bit of bit of the old memesing didn't there's she there's a whole subgenre um, of Nadine Nadine Doris intended to submit her resignation but accidentally adopted a snow leopard etc yes. there was someone did a tweet that was I'm pretty sure it must have been photoshopped but it was like someone is having fun with the government ministerial page um, where every single minister is uh, Nadine Doris uh, except for one that is Jacob Rees-Mogg <laughs> <laughs> and then of course the one that 
kind of gave it gave its name as a beautiful hashtag to the whole business was the downfall meme in this instance hashtag clownfall um do you want to explain what the um the downfall meme is yeah so this is a scene from the 2004 film uh by directed by oliver Hirschenbagel and starring bruno gans as adolf hitler and it's a sort of real-time film documenting a fi- well a, an imagined version yeah. of uh, the, the final hours of, of yeah. Yeah. yeah so hitler is in the bunker and all of his loyal acolytes are wavering and it's not long before he's going to kill himself mm. and there's a particular sequence where it, it becomes apparent to him that all is lost and he loses his temper uh, I, I think it's a gift as a meme because yeah. it's hitler so you've got the congruity thing again because he loses it because the way he loses temper is obviously so extreme but also it is so slow and drawn out, isn't it? Mm. Then by this point, it's been memed so many times that you know, like, oh, now it's the women looking terrified. Yeah. Now it goes to them exchanging horrified glances, and this is the moment where he's going to lose it because it plays out so slowly, yeah. and there's so many stages to the rising tension and horror of it yeah. all. It works, and I think it works well as a meme because this is an obvious thing to say, but because it's a German language film, mm. it's got subtitles, so you can subtitle yeah. it with anything, and it looks um, right. Yeah, and it was absolutely perfect for this, wasn't it? Yeah. You, because you basically got Boris in his bunker, and but the irony is, rather than it being like the military outside to take his power away, it's someone loudly playing the Benny Hill thing. Yes. Um, so I thought something we could do is we could perform this. Okay. Because it's in German, so I've painfully transcribed the. Wow. What was the name of the person who did this version? Um, uh, this it was the. Was, right, um, at Mr. Jean de Plume. Jean de Plume. Do you um, want to be advisor or Hitler? I'll be advisor. Okay. Do it. Do we try and do it like with the proper intonation? We'll, we'll just see how it goes. Yeah. It, see if the spirit moves us. Okay. und stößt auf Stahnsdorf vor. Es ist dem Feind gelungen, die Front in breiter Formation zu durchbrechen. The 1922 committee are meeting to work out how to get rid of you, and Stephen Bray has surrounded the place with speakers. Jonathan Gullis has written a letter <laughs> with, with the one crayon he hasn't eaten, and Lee Anderson has left a food bank to say he wouldn't give you 30p if you were starving. Is there anyone left who will support me? Steiner. Spaffer, Fabricant, Bone and Swain, and Pincher still likes you. Steiner konnte nicht genügend Kräfte für einen Angriff massieren. Der Angriff Steiner ist nicht erfolgt. Mog, Barkley, Rab, stay in here. Everyone else leave. Das war ein Befehl! Der Angriff Steiner war ein Befehl! Wer sind sie? How can they get rid of me now? They weren't bothered about the lies on the bus or that I met a KGB agent at his house in Italy or when I tried to get my mistress a 100k a year job and I don't mean the blowjob. They were happy with the backhanders to buy the shitty wallpaper and all the meaningless three-word slogans. They weren't even bothered by the lockdown work events. They were parties, actually. I was ambushed by a cake. And there was a suitcase of wine. Have you ever tried working with Noreen Doris? She's not all there. They weren't bothered by the donor-funded takeaways. They didn't care about Cummings' road trip or that I said, let the bodies pile high in their thousands. I refuse to apologise for saying tank top wearing bum boys or pickaninnies with watermelon smiles or calling Muslim women letterboxes. I've had my fair share of affairs and serious assault allegations and they weren't bothered. And then Pincher grabs someone's ass and it brings me down. I yeah. can't do a German accent. No. Um, no, I think it was well performed. But you get that it's great, yeah. isn't it? And it? Yeah, it is. And I think it was cathartic 
to see it all summarised so succinctly into one sketch, like yeah. the list of the litany of offences and the extremeness of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was lovely memeing. It was. It was. What do you think? All of the satire stuff that we've said, you know, because we'll go on and talk later in the interview about like what satire is and what function. Was that just like kind of mindless? spasming reactions to what was going on was it people like comforting themselves was anybody like doing productive work there or was that an example of like satire is almost like a self-soothing mechanism mm. do you think um i think it was all of them this time and yeah. i think the cumulative effect of all of it must have had an impact on the resignation at this stage i mean when he can't the i when you can't have a news report outside of Downing Street because, you know, the, the Benny Hill theme is playing and you mm. can't, like, n- everybody, Nadine Dora, they all became a meme, just mm. a meme. I know that he's always used memes to his advantage, but at this point it was, like, yeah. I think, irretrievable. Yeah, and it was, it was circular as well, wasn't it? Because they were playing Bye Bye Boris, mm. but in PMQs that week, the Labour front benches were all kind of waving and mm. saying bye bye. Um, well, there was the PMQs, wasn't there, where... Yeah, like that. You just—I mean, you just mentioned it, but like everyone was queuing up just to take shots at yeah Boris, uh, cheap shots because it is so cheap. Like there's yeah. nothing. There's well, no what, what other kind left. of shot can you fire at? A cheap man deserves a cheap shot. He does, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah, and then then at last there was the speech, wasn't there? Yes. The so outside Downing Street. As with all of these things, it was leaked before that he was going to do it. So mm-hmm. there was a morning of people saying his recognition is coming, and then he yeah. comes out onto the podium and does his speech. Yeah. And what do you think? Well, what happened in the speech? Well, he sort of boasted about everything that he'd done. He said he hadn't really done anything wrong. The problem is that people were just ganging up and bullying him. The only regret he had is that he couldn't persuade them to stop it. And that's just the nature of the beast, or mm. the, the the beasts in the herd. Mm. And I think most people were in, in agreement that it was a insane, self-aggrandizing, <laughs> nonsensical speech in which he showed no contrition yes. um, and no self-awareness. And it was just a shitty end to a shitty premiership, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. it was not the end, but well, he, um, he it, had... it was just Boris Johnson through and through, wasn't it? No apology, only self-congratulation. Yeah. Um, and this is obviously the subject of more satire. I think the um, room next door summarises it well. Should we listen to that? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Michael Spicer uh, room. So the room next door meme was big in the pandemic, wasn't it? I think it's gone mm-hmm. quiet for a while because Michael Spicer, I think, has become actually famous. Uh, but he came back and did this one, uh, which summarises everything, I think, pretty... So, th- and the, the kind of conceit here mm-hmm. is it's the person who's advising any particular person in the news for yeah. their like earpiece yeah say to the millions of people who voted for us in 2019 sorry for partying every single friday whilst telling us at the same time that we couldn't sit on a park bench with our nan or and the reason i have fought so hard in the last few days to continue duty obligation blah 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 but because i felt it was my job my duty my obligation my god and of course i'm immensely proud of the achievements of this government. Well, we haven't got time to list them all, okay? So just, um, no, sorry, we do have seven seconds. Please go ahead. From getting Brexit done. Mm, It's not done. It's a mountain of burning tyres that threatens the Good Friday Agreement. But, you know, keep going because uh, who cares, really? For settling our relations uh, with the continent. Relations with the continent were fine before you came along. Now when Europeans think of the United Kingdom, they think of that time when you were stuck on a zip wire like a bumbling egg with a union jack up your ass. 
getting us all through the pandemic. 180,000 people died, but yes, let's claim it as a triumph. Why not? I mean, literally nothing you say matters anymore, so. Delivering the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe. That vaccine rollout had nothing to do with you. Nothing at all. It's like taking credit for bees or the moon. The fastest exit from lockdown. Yes, that's why we had to go into a second lockdown. And a third, you clod-hopping fart pipe. And to you, the British public. I want you to know how sorry I am. I know that there will be many people who are... No, I want you to know how sorry I am. And I want you to know how sad I am. No, sorry. Sorry. S-O-R-R-Y. I want to thank Carrie. Never mind wallpaper Wendy. Just say sorry, okay? Dig right down into that poisonous soul of yours and try to find one apology. You know, imagine trying to retrieve a diamond ring from a blocked toilet. Even if things can sometimes... Wait, no. Don't wrap this up. You haven't said sorry for anything yet. Seem dark now. Please say sorry just once. Our future together is shit. Thank you all very much. Great. It what strikes me there mm-hmm. is that normally the comedy of those sketches is from the idea that he's advising them something and they're saying something else and there's kind of a... Um, because he's, he's doing the video with hindsight, the idea that how the advice might be transmuted into what's actually come out of somebody's mouth mm. um, and it, it feels like the joke is partly about advising people when they're doing speeches but that felt like he just wanted to do like a live action a, a, a reaction video this is what I was thinking when mm. I was watching Boris Johnson's speech so it seems different yeah. from his usual ones and not as funny it's not as funny no it's quite I don't know. Again, there's a satisfaction in seeing the offences listed mm. so concisely. It's just, yeah, the point of it is Boris Johnson is unapologetic. It's like he's completely. Mm. Yeah, it was. It was. It was rage and everything, and there's a, a cathartic element in that. But mm. it was. It it was a different. Yeah. Beast. Was. from from what he normally does. Who do you think's going to be next? <laughs> I don't know, but it was like comical the speed with which Rishi Sunak released mm. his extremely high... Which, uh, there's basically no way he only recorded that in the last no. few days. It, uh, it's, I don't know, it's like there's, there's snow on the ground and some <laughs> somebody walking past holding imperial currency or something. Yeah. Um, Have you seen the video? Quite. I actually haven't. I've, oh, really? Yeah, slightly kept away recently. Well, I guess I can, yeah. can I tell you about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he comes on and he, he says, uh, he tells the heartwarming story about a person who came to England, an immigrant who came to England with absolutely nothing um, and faced all sorts of oppression and discrimination, but was able to find uh, make find work and build a family. And that person was like his great grandma or something. Right. Okay. Um, and then it skips right from then to him believing in people and wanting to bring everyone together and wanting to unify everyone. And it's only together that we can move forward. Um, so he's pretty much saying, "I am the face of contemporary Britain. I come from humble origins, um, and I believe in unifying." people mm. but it, i mean it's, it's immediately undermined by people circulating that video have you seen him saying that he doesn't have any working class friends <laughs> have you seen that video no <laughs> he goes so someone says to him like what do you know about he's much younger but they're like what do you know about the england and like who, and, and how do you know you have a balanced perspective and he's like well i've got all kinds of friends i've got upper class friends i've got you know aristocratic friends i've got middle class friends i've got working class friends and he goes well i don't have any working class friends <laughs> i have friends who are aristocrats i have friends who are upper class i have friends who are you know working class but i'm not working class but so that that immediately undermined it. um yeah. but it's a gift for the parodic satirist mm. and rosie holt of course 
has done a parody of it. Want to um, see it? Yeah. Hear it? Yeah. Let me tell you a story. It's about a young woman born almost a lifetime ago. A working class lass born on this very estate. I'm talking about my grandmother. She worked hard for our country against a very real threat that was like the pandemic but with guns. Then she met my grandfather who also had his own struggles, probably. They went on to have a little baby, my mother. She then met my father when they weren't babies and then they had me. It is pretty much verbatim Rishi Sunak's but she's just switched in yeah. her own stuff. And and what about the rest of them? I mean, there's quite a few, isn't there? Tom Tuggenhat was in a satirical dispute of 2018 or 19, wasn't it? Over yeah, well, I don't know if he was in it. Stuart Lee mocked his name and people said, that you can't do that, that's anti-Semitic. Yes. Yeah, well, I don't yeah. know if Tom Tuggenhat got involved in that. I think spat. he con- I looked. He t- did a tweet condemning Did he? Right, okay. yeah. Liz um, Truss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Cunt. Yeah. Jeremy Hunt. Home Secretary Jeremy Gunt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the Today programme, it must have been about like 2012 or something, because yeah. um, Jim Noxie was still um, hosting it, and he accidentally did that. I don't know, is it a spoonerism? He he um, he called him Jeremy Gunt. Right. And then <laughs> pretended that he had a terrible cough, because he was absolutely <laughs> corpsing and um, giggling loads. Right. And then did it again, I think. Right. And then later that morning on the Andrew Marr program that was on at nine o'clock Andrew Marr it was live and he opened it by saying well and I hope I'm not going to make any mistakes like my colleague who just referred to the foreign secretary Jeremy Cunt (laughs) (laughs) it was it was quite the morning I can remember there was a montage of every time Mm. it's happened isn't there yeah so yeah yeah so uh yeah Sashi Javid Pretty Patel uh Suella Braverman uh yeah Pretty God, it's an uninspiring list, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, although if you, did you see the uh, Jonathan Pye tweet, which was a tweet of an actual stat? So Rishi Sunak is currently in third place in the leadership contest after... None of the above. <laughs> and don't know. <laughs> so none of the above wins by a significant um, <laughs> yeah. majority, doesn't so yeah, it? Yeah, so 30% for yeah. none of the above, 28% for don't know, 13% for Rishi Sunak. And then the rest of threes, twos and fours. Yeah. Good so it looks like Rishi is in it's, the lead, isn't he? Um, it's a bad set of options isn't yeah. it yeah um, and even among Tory party members Ben Wallace is out to the front isn't he but none of the above and don't know are still pretty yeah strongly represented in yeah. those stats there pretty Patel is extremely unpopular yeah. and I think Penny Mordaunt's um, campaign video was also controversial in that she put and she originally had a bit of a clip of an interview with Sarah Gilbert from she of Oxford AstraZeneca fame mm-hmm. um, but that got trimmed down in such a way as to make you wonder whether somebody asked if that could please be it was yeah. replaced with generic footage of nurses and she had footage of the Paralympian Johnny Peacock who yeah. said take my name out of your Tory party yeah. leadership campaign yeah. and it's been, it's been observed that it's quite similar to the, the day to day everything's alright yeah. Transmission. And also, someone has overlaid <clears throat> Tom Baker from Little Britain over right. the footage. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, because you remember he'd be like, This yeah. is Great Britain, where yeah. we have running Britain, water. Britain, yeah. Britain. And it, uh, it works exactly right. Mm. The other meme that's raging at the moment is the Those Conservative Leader Candidates in Full meme, which is where you basically post. I mean, 
there's one clip where it's a bunch of kids saying their names. I don't know what. Oh, I've seen this one. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> where is it? Just kids from. I don't know what this program was. It's yeah. British, isn't it? But yeah. They're all sort of coming on doing dancing and yeah. shouting there. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, go on then. It's probably enough of that. Yeah. I think next time on the next episode, you should come on and go like, "I'm Adam," (laughs) and then I'll go, "I'm Joe." To you. (laughs) That bit's quite aggressive. Yeah. So, um, so, (laughs) what do you want? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah. Again, just a wonderful bit of Mm. uh, congruity, isn't it? But you can do that meme. So there's ones where it's that, but the candidates are like Darth Vader and Voldemort and uh, Blofeld and, and so on. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess you've already asked the question, but, what I mean, what do you... That's, that's that kind of satire. We can think more about what it means and what its function is, but certainly there is seems to be a relationship to what we would understand as perhaps the public emotions. Mm. Um, it's an expression of public emotion. Yeah, um, and, and that emotion is incredulous, mm. dark laughter and mm. despair, really, yeah. isn't it? Um, and this is sort of... What Professor Robert Figgins' book is about. (laughs) So seamlessly transition into the interview segment of this episode. Um, So we're going to play an interview with a man called Professor Robert Figgin, who teaches in Renaissance and 18th century literature at Flinders University. He's written a book called Satire and the Public Emotions. Um, He's at Flinders University, has a special interest in political satire, parody and humour. He researches political satire, especially Australian political cartoons. So in the book, he talks about how political satire and we've talked about this in the podcast a lot, positions itself is spoken about as something that fearlessly speaks truth to power, um, but that's not actually what it does. He argues that the role of satirical communication is in licensing public expression of harsh emotions, such as contempt, anger, and disgust. And I think that is kind of what we've been seeing, isn't it? Mm. That the, the, This satire in these memes and parodies and videos and stuff has given license to a very public expression of anger, contempt and disgust. Yeah. So I can't think of a better time really to speak to Let's Professor speak Robert Fidian. Let's speak to Professor Robert Fidian. Well, hello Robert. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Excellent. So, well, Joe, would you like to ask the first question? I'm happy to ask the first question. It's a question we we end up in some way or another asking everyone, but you have some interesting takes on the whole topic. So, Robert, how do you define satire? Well, I start by insisting that calling something a satire doesn't tell you anything much about its form. Uh, so, so, so the satirical, the adjective, is much more used than the, the, than, than the noun satire. So there are satirical novels, there are satirical performances, there are satirical this, that and the other. Um, and the uh, and the other thing is that uh, the thing I particularly argue is that satire um, aims to uh, aims to mobilise your emotions as well as your thinking, um, and often it does so. In fact, nearly always it does so in hostile. It, it, it's on the, working on the hostile emotions. Uh, it's a so it, it and. Um, and so the work is particularly about those hostile emotions. Uh, and this is something we don't automatically get because we think satire makes us laugh and therefore it's like comedy and therefore it's somehow wholemeal and good 
and, 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 and pleasant. But um, to the extent that there is a distinction between satire and comedy, and I think there is, uh, it really does focus on, on this element this, this element of, well, othering is what satire does, mm. really, I guess. Yeah, I like that. So hostile and unwholesome, did you say? <laughs> You're right. It's much it's much easier to say that something is satirical, isn't it, perhaps, than to say that is satire. Yeah. Yeah. The sort of knockdown example I use uh, is is Dickens's um, is Dickens's great novel Bleak House, which uh, has got a lot of satire in it, but there's no way you call it a satire overall. Yeah. You know, you could come up with nonsense numbers and say it's twenty something percent satire and 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 forty something percent melodrama, etc. I don't know. You know, I don't care what you do with that, but that's but that but that's sort of the point. Compared to something like um, something like Gulliver's Travels, which is dominantly satire, you call it a satire because that's really what it's doing so much of the time. Yeah, there's an interesting case that came up when we spoke to. Um, the academic Dieter Del Kirk, and he was talking about Handmaid's Tale as he used it as a case study, as an example of satire in his book. Uh, you mentioned it in your book as well. I think in this kind of context that it sort yeah. of has satirical, it has uses a satirical mode. But then it came up when we were speaking to Andrew Bricker as well, um, when we were in front of a live audience, and uh, all three of us were stumped as to whether or not we would be comfortable saying it was a satirical novel. But I think the answer is, as you say. It's, it engages with a satirical mode, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a satirical novel. I mean, it doesn't. It's not a very funny novel, and that's the other thing. Uh, this, that saying sat- something is satirical is not necessarily saying that it's funny. It's saying that it is witty, uh, that it'll have some sort of satirical fiction uh, that, that it's using, and that's certainly what Handmaid's Tale does. You know, the, the, the the idea of the United States actually taken over by fundamentalists, which uh, is this week in particular looking horribly more like prophecy than provocation. Um, so, but uh, so it, it, it the, the other one that this reminds me of is 1984. It's a satirical novel. It's just not funny. That's yeah. not the point. It's making an argument. So the, th- the other thing about satire is that you ascribe intention to it, uh, it's, you, that if you, if you say something is satirical, then it's trying to tell you something about mm-hmm. the world. Uh, rather than just make you laugh, mm. as most you know, as my students often say, it's just to make us laugh, isn't it? Well, yes, some things are, and other things are less so. There's a line in the book which I've already used on two occasions. Uh, one of them was at a conference just the other day, or a quote I cited it. But so when you say that satire is hostile after for critical purposes, which mm. is a, a nice moment of synthesising a lot of different discussions all into one sentence. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, you know. <laughs> Actually, being being read is is, is is fantastic, and being quoted is the next level beyond. <laughs> um, yeah, you were on Adam's PowerPoint two days ago in Manchester. <laughs> we were speaking about teaching satire and comedy at a, at a conference, um, and I was sort okay. of tr- making the point that one of the issues with teaching satire and comedy, and it follows on from what you were just saying, is that because satire does seem to have well it has to have a purpose isn't the sat- the, mm. the mask of the satirist is making a point about the real world and it's yep. using exaggeration and hostile laughter to do that but once you introduce that into a seminar discussion it brings back the author function and suddenly the amount of interpretations can quickly limit to a student saying well obviously swift was upset about this 
the actual quote that I used was the one where uh, what readers and audiences make of satire is a more important object of study than pure and irretrievable authorial intention. I really learned that by doing work on political cartoons with a with a colleague in in in, in politics. Uh, so I, I, I did a series of papers on cartoons during Australian elections with Hayden Manning, and um, he just wasn't interested in my subtle interpretations of the of the detail of gesture and language in these cartoons. He wanted to know what they did politically. So the focus on the effects of satire is something I'm, I, I think they're just much more interesting questions than coming up with interpretations of what the ideal reader should have should have come up with. Now I discovered that with the modest proposal, I decided to do a paper as a young person on the modest proposal. And I was sure that there would be a, a significant impact. You know, I just, it was such a powerful piece of writing. Uh, there I was in a rare books room holding an original, you know, an original copy of the D- Dublin edition, etc. No, nothing. One person who seems, the one, one comment we have, uh, he seemed to miss the point. Uh, and that's kind of distressing. You you kind of critique the idea or you, you engage with the idea that it, it isn't necessarily about laughter, it isn't necessarily about things being funny or designed to make us laugh. But you you also seem to trouble the idea that it's, as you say, impassioned rhetoric that claims to be for the common good. Um, mm. And you call that the myth of impertinent efficacy, which is a great phrase. Can you say more about that? Like, how? what is it you see about satire that, that isn't quite explained through that definition? The purpose of satire is to move the passions. The 18th century language of the passions is actually almost better than the 21st century language of the emotions, but that's probably another issue. We assume that when we get a satirical text, that makes it true and that makes it valuable. Uh, but unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, history of satire being used to purposes that are morally and ethically bankrupt. There's, there's a long tradition of, for example, racist cartooning. And, and you can either say, well, because they're not good, therefore they're not satire, which, in which case you've got a normative theory of satire that says only stuff I agree with is really satire, or you have to accept that there is such a, there's no law against bad satire, which I think is a much more sensible way of approaching things. Um, and, and so our emotions can be moved to laugh at. I said earlier it's an othering business. Now, it's fine if it's othering fools and knaves who really deserve to be othered, but, it's, but satire can also be used to keep people, categories of people, in terms of class, race, gender, all those things, uh, in their position. There's some fantastic late 17th, early 18th century writing by women, um, particularly Anne Finch, Duchess of Winchelsea, sort of exploring the terms of how she's going to be criticised simply for being a woman. You still see that today. We saw that in Australia fairly recently with um, Prime Minister Gillard. Yeah, I was offended. Yeah. <laughs> We just, so this is in my mind because we just came from this conference, but that was a conversation that came up where somebody asked in, from the audience said, they were referring to the, this British comic, Stuart Lee, and they sort of said, as he becomes more establishment, can he still be punching up? And if he's not punching up, is it still satire? And I sort of said, well, if you look at these formal definitions of satire, punching up isn't part of it, is it? You can say, yeah. like, it's not, that's not it. That's, if anything, part of the mask of the satirist. They position themselves mm. as, as the, the person who's, you know, speaking truth to power, but that's not actually... I mean, you mentioned the passions then, and we've also we've mentioned hostile emotions as well. A big part of the book is this thing called CAD, C-A-D, uh, yep. neuroscience. But yeah, could you talk to us a little bit about what CAD is? So, so there's a neuroscience and psychology and indeed philosophy of, of the emotions, uh, and, they've, and they've tried to 
try to generalise basic emotions. And CAD is the triad of negative or hostile emotions, uh, contempt, anger and disgust. It's only really in that order because it looks better as CAD. Um, I think the best place to start is with disgust. Satire sort of makes points and laughs, what makes us want to to reject something that's just, and the th- point where this whole line of thought dropped for me was when a neuroscientist colleague of mine said you know you know Robert the, the parts of the brain that that work on physical disgust looking at a the look and smell of rotting flesh or whatever they're the same parts of the brain that work with moral disgust I've discovered since that there's more debate to it than that but you know it's still a very productive idea that Satire does encourage visceral reactions, and these can be used to to various purposes. Uh, you know, the, the the satire I like is when it's used to good purposes, obviously, perhaps as I perceive to be good. So that so that the, and disgust seems to me the most obvious one. That you know, that's disgusting is one of the things a satirical attack on corruption is going to say. There are, and there are the disease metaphors of corruption, etc. Then there's revolutionary satire that seeks to make you angry and then do something because disgust makes you recoil from things, but it doesn't make you, but, but it's not an emotion that makes you act positively. The call to anger at how shameless a politician is, just to keep banging on about politicians. Finally, contempt, which isn't doesn't have the same level of certainty amongst the psychologists that it's a, one of the basic emotions. Contempt is the was the dark horse in my thinking. I thought initially I thought it's just a subcategory of disgust, isn't it? But as I kept writing, I discovered that contempt is also something that's that satire very much works with, which is a cool withdrawal from or rising above. A, a subject and and working with contempt is ethically ethically sometimes necessary because uh, and and we've had a series of shameless politicians particularly in the English speaking world I include my own country re- recent Prime Minister Morrison you may have views about your country and the United States who who refused standards and so contempt becomes a, a, an effective and apt in the language of one philosopher's, an apt way of reacting to their refusal of a moral engagement with what with the implications of what they're doing. Do you think that contempt is a a more agreeable thing to feel than disgust, perhaps, and that satire helps us to get to a place of contempt where you you can kind of have that like the detachment and the sense of sort of distance and superiority, whereas disgust is a sort is a more unpleasant thing to feel, isn't it? I completely agree. It's it's hard to stay disgusted with something um, or something. And unpleasant, is yeah. Uh, and unpleasant. It's hard work, hard yeah. emotional work to do so. This is where it came through. I've, the the object of satire that I feel should have been exploded by now. I ended up feeling contempt for those people or positions or whatever. Another place to look for that actually is in in Austen's writing, Jane Austen. Uh, she uses the word disgust where we would probably use the word contempt because it seems to be very much a matter of social regulation and keeping people keeping people in their place. So it's more agreeable and it is therefore slipperier, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and somebody who's contemptible is sort of further beyond redemption, aren't they, than somebody who has done something disgusting. You're beyond the pale once, you've, once you're contemptible. That's really interesting, yeah. There's a bit in the book where you talk about this, the satirist figure is mm. positioned, they make an appeal to reason, 
or they see something that is ridiculous. But actually, it, satire is quite an irrational thing. It, would you think is it is it would you say it's irrational to feel this level of anger or contempt or disgust about something to the extent that you then have to produce the work? Because I was thinking, um, I was teaching Catch Twenty Two last year, and I had a, there was a quote. I think it might have been Dustin Griffin. I can't remember, but it was on a similar theme. And it's sort of in Catch Twenty Two. Obviously, your protagonist is positioned as the person who is not mad, but actually the extent to which he agonises over every single hypocrisy mm. is is unhealthy. The satirist is claims to be uh, a rational judge, but is clearly an impassioned one, um, and so is moved is 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 moved by emotions and is presenting it. It's a rhetorical position rather than a rational position. Yeah. That's the that, that's that's the obvious obvious underpinning. You know, as as Juvenal said. You know, the, the famousest of all satire quotes, it's difficult not to write satire, uh, that, the, uh, that the world makes you do it uh, is the claim that uh, is, a, is a claim that most sort of persistent satirists will give you. And, and then they will claim their motivation is public good, public, public health, asserting standards sometimes. The idea that satire is always progressive is a relatively recent one, as in it's become dominant in the last half century or so, um, but it's it's always a reaction to something. So it's, it's not as if there can't be reactionary or conservative satire as well. Uh, but yeah, that position of the satirist is is very much a is very much a persona. And one of the things that I worry about is how strongly gendered it seems to have been. White guys like me end up being satirists an awful lot more than more than than, than women or people of colour or people who haven't had my relatively privileged education. Now, that seems to be changing a bit, but I don't know whether it's changing as much as it should have done yet, but I'll defer to Joe on that. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it has. We've, we've talked about this in lots of different contexts and it's, it's come up a lot. It is even still kind of mostly a man's game and then often a very kind of white genre, but and also the, I think there's class in there as well, isn't there? And yeah. we talked about this with Janie Godley quite a while back, that it's it's also class and privilege and even the, a kind of an, an upbringing and an education that, that the, the subjects of satire often share, that mm. it seems to kind of come in this country from public schools and from Oxbridge or certainly like traditionally some of the the biggest hitters in satire have a, a not dissimilar background to the people and things that they're satirising. And I guess that there's a logic to that, isn't there? That you're better placed to have observed the things you mm. want to critique if you understand that context. But it's slow to shift, isn't it? When we think about satirists and talk about satirists, I think we, we slip into to assuming they're male, and they are. <laughs> I've just got one sort of body of people to add to that because uh, I've been looking at Australian political cartoonists for 20 or so years now. Uh, when I started back in the 90s, they were nearly all men. Mm. And we said, well, yeah, that's because they got their jobs in the 70s and people stay in these jobs a long time. We're now in the 2020s. They're still nearly all men. And it's not because there aren't good ones. The best one in the country, um, Kathy Wilcox in the Sydney Morning Herald, is the best one in the country in a lot of people's opinions, not just mine. But the percentage is still, and the people getting the, people getting the new jobs are still dominantly male. Um, and uh, that, that, that's something that niggles at me given that I've given a fair bit of my life to studying satire. 
Yeah, I think there's an an unhelpful overlap as well, isn't there, maybe with comedy, insofar as satire and comedy do overlap. Mm. Humour and wit and comedy, I think, my sense anyway, is they're they're prized and valued and commended more in males than females from quite an early age. So Mm. when, when people when primary school teachers talk about somebody being the class clown or being mm. funny and wit being being a good thing i think that's still that's still more of a kind of characterization of boys than girls and i think that that continues so insofar as satire and comedy do share certain attributes that probably doesn't help as well but yeah it's um, it's definitely slow to shift isn't it mm. yep yeah. It's interesting when you just mentioned a few minutes ago about the idea that this question of whether satire is good or bad is a relatively recent phenomenon in the grand scope of history. Because mm. when we when we do events with the public, I mean, we talk about this a lot on the podcast and just generally, but when we do events with the public, it always comes back down to, they, people always say, uh, does satire ever make a difference? And we, to which we reply, there's a huge burden of responsibility on the satirical mode to actually have met to make a difference on things, mm. which is not necessarily the case with the other modes and genres. But is satire made a difference? And is it is it actually a good thing or a bad thing? And something we've had a few times is people saying, if satire is a coping mechanism, does it actually just allow you to continue under the conditions you're in rather than change the conditions? So is it more of a more of a conservative thing than a than a a radical thing um but in your account you sort of talk about how satire is well the actual quote is an almost universal element of political life like it's there all the time not necessarily just people agitating for change it's, it's universally it's, it's sort of embedded so um I, I what i think satire does is help perform or mobilize a catharsis of the public emotions mm-hmm. uh, so that you can play these things out in public in symbolic terms in language, in media, uh, in performance. In that sense, it is an outlet of energy probably more often. Very few people change their mind as a consequence of being ruthlessly satirised. Sometimes a a, a satirical provocation goes off in strange ways. It wasn't the case that Salman Rushdie was writing the satanic verses against against Islam. He was writing the satanic verses against, <laughs> particularly against Margaret Thatcher, whose government ended up protecting him reasonably well. I think the people who think, well, yeah, it just normalises things have certainly got a point. Uh, it's a question of how bad that is compared to uh, always being, because the alternative to that is always always struggling for change all the time, which is probably is even more exhausting than being uh, disgusted all the time, according to our early, earlier discussion. And it's not as if being angry at someone makes you right. Uh, satire against otherwise pretty good politicians in liberal polities it still has to happen, still a, still a useful thing, because there are going to be people who disagree with them. So in that sense, I think it's part of the ecology of, of a free-ish press. I never say there's such a thing as a free press, uh, but I think there are, there are more or less free presses. You quoted back at me the idea of almost universal, and I was thinking, well, where wouldn't it exist? And I end up with, idea, with, with images like North Korea. I don't think there's a much, even in less efficient 
authoritarian societies, there tends to be satire. There was Senator's Dutch material in the Soviet Union. There's the lovely Winnie the Pooh memes about Xi Jinping in China. That, that also helps an opposition survive under oppression. I think that's also a useful function for satire. Uh, at, at a much more banal level, it helped me survive 11 years of, the, of John Howard's government in Australia. I got very annoyed at him, so I read, I read cartoons and they cheered me up. Yeah. Um, they, they showed me why I was right and he was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't I go out can... and mind shooting, which would have been a bad thing. <laughs> I think we can relate to that quite strongly, especially right now. Who's that 18th century guy who said the spirit of satire arises when when things are out of kilter and it's sort of a sign of everything being troubled and awful? Anthony Ashley? Anthony Ashley Cooper, Shaftesbury. Yeah, yeah, but you're kind of saying the opposite there, I think, aren't you? That if, if satire is abounding and if politicians and prominent figures have to kind of think about it and be conscious that it's going on that's that's actually quite a healthy thing and a sign of a a reasonably healthy society if satire is free and flourishing well in that particular moment so 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 cooper felt that ridicule should somehow be self-regulating that it would fix things because people would see the error of their ways but it seems to me that uh, in, in the early 18th century, the first Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, pretty corrupt guy, really. I think he was kept within the bounds of plausibility by, by fear of the opposition press and particularly satirists like Jonathan Swift, um, Alexander Pope, John Gay, all of whom, all of whom are in one, at one level evidence that you can have the greatest satirist in English language writing against you and what happens, you stay Prime Minister for 22 years. Uh, on, on the other hand, um, he certainly showed an awareness, um, an, an awareness of the capacity uh, of satire to shame, to bring shame, and, to, and he, he worked to avoid it. Uh, and so it probably kept some restraint on what he felt he could get away with. I love that phrase, keeping him within the bounds of plausibility. I feel like that's that's gone awry here of late. People are people are well outside the boundaries of plausibility. At the... We've had a very bad decade on a number of. Yeah. I've made a lot of bets on rationality 10, 15 years ago, and they've all proved wrong. <laughs> Johnson is obviously a, one of the politicians like Trump who refuses shame, but uh, he he seems to have been caught up with eventually. So um, to wrap up, then we're going to we're going to quote you again one last time. So you end the book by considering the function and future of satire in the digital age and conclude that today, many, including myself, fear that the general public will be sucked into ideological monocultures by the market segmenting logic of social media. Should that happen, satires will only aid an epidemic of emotional confirmation bias that narrow emotional publics incite. If some public space for debate and dispute is kept alive, however, there will continue to be plenty of stabilising emotional work for satire to do. So you said that, can you talk us talk us through it and um, tell us where your thoughts are on this at the moment? Okay, I guess the problem is is the question of a public of a public sphere. Uh, I see political satire as, as an important, if slightly dark, part of the public sphere that Habermas and others talk about in the eighteenth century, and that is characteristic of the print age, where, where there's some degree of deliberation um, going on in in public space that that 
everybody has at least theoretical access to uh, and in practical terms with mass media had some level of access to with all the problems of gatekeeping that that brought, that, that, that mm. brought with it. Now with social media, um, we increasingly don't have to be confronted by people we disagree with. Uh, and, yeah. satire, and satire that preaches to people who already agree, agree with it is fine, but kind of it it's a bit, feels to me a bit like a waste of time. There's a lot of stand-up satire can be like that. Uh, where you can just you know get up on a stage and say Donald Trump and everybody will laugh, uh, or on a very different stage get up and say Hillary Clinton and everybody will laugh or howl or whatever. And I think social media social media can expand the range of satire and satirists. It can also create a degree of narrow casting. Uh, allows for the culture wars to just keep raging on, it seems to me. That's one anxiety. And the other anxiety is that the way to respond to this as a public figure is just by refusing the contract of shame uh, in under any circumstances. And we've already talked about that a bit, but uh, Donald Trump was the first major... Uh, American politician to just refuse to, to just refuse to be shamed when caught out talking about grabbing the genitalia of a woman and uh, and Boris Johnson seems to be another example and so and so when I wrote that those those guys were both doing well just this week they're not doing so well uh, maybe that's a sign that we're coming to terms with this more friable arena for public emotions or maybe it's just a lull. But because satire doesn't simply work in the it work in the area of, of belabored truth, it works in the area of the emotions and the public emotions. Because the most satisfying thing is howling in agreement at some at someone, uh, I think it can drive on tribalism r- rather than work to keep us living peacefully together. Is there a public space for debate and dispute, or is there anything any context that you think comes close to that, or do you? Do you feel pessimistic about the idea that there is, there are places where debate and dispute are are healthily alive and happening? I'm formed by the late print age. I grew up reading newspapers. Uh, so in Australia, the formation tends to be that we have two dom- had two dominant newspapers in in each of the major capital cities. I grew up in Melbourne, and and the paper there in the 80s and 90s, the Age, had a had a good range, it had its positions, but it had a good range of views in it. Rupert Murdoch's national paper, The Australian, when I started reading it in the 90s, had certainly had its positions, but had a good range of views. Uh, after a quarter of a century reading it, I gave up a couple of years ago because I just got sick of being shouted at. Um, those spaces are definitely going. Um, the sort of the, the assumption that you have to uh, submit yourself to the public broadcaster seems to be the question from the public broadcaster seems to be dying in Australia. And uh, I understand not doing so well in the UK if people don't want to talk to it. Uh, and broadcast television and all these media had their problems, but they had created a sort of ecosystem where there was some degree of, of reasoned public debate and, and mediated public emotion. I don't understand where that's happening now, and that might just be my age, but it seems to me that that, that there's a risk of um, pe- people only finding the people that they're inclined to agree with. And uh, I have this nostalgic view that that there can be things like national cultures, I guess. I mean, the cat emotions plus tribalism certainly doesn't sound like a healthy <laughs> recipe, does it? Yeah, I was thinking earlier about about this idea of virtue signaling on social media and stuff, and so often it is by signaling one of those emotions, isn't it? I am the I have the right idea because I'm disgusted, 
angry or contemptuous of this idea. So, so one way of illustrating that is uh, in my work on political cartoons, mm. we're often asked, so is the meme the, the, the new political cartoon? Uh, and it's a good question. But, uh, and this is particularly work, work by my colleague Lucien Leon, uh, is that preliminary views are that the problem with memes is that they're so easily traduced to propagandistic purposes. Yeah. Um, so that uh, it, sectional positions can use a meme, can, can use can put out memes, and you don't really know where they've come from, they, and they can push very hard emotional lines one one way or another. Um, and so there isn't any level of brokering. So in that sense, they're not yet the same as as a cartoon uh, in 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 a broadsheet or broadcast medium. There isn't that public space element to it necessarily. And it's very easily abused by, 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 by bad operators. Yeah. I mean, it's something that, I mean, I imagine we might have to talk about this one day. I've been putting it off, uh, I mean, on the podcast. But there's there was a documentary recently about a guy in America. I've forgotten his name. He's quite well known. But he um, he's basically a very young millionaire guy. Uh, who through things like 4chan and these has these memes and has become famous and has a great big following and it's all based on sort of nihilistic trolling and stuff like that uh, and whenever confronted about it and often it's openly it reads as openly racist or openly it's just hate it, it actually is I mean that gets overused but I think it actually is just just nihilistic and hateful and he will say oh it's comedy it's just satire and it's it, no offense but as they say in the playground Exactly, yeah. So, uh, and has amassed this enormous profile um, and platform. But yeah, I mean, I guess it is interesting in, in a way that when you take away the sort of, um, or what appears to happen, what appears to be happening, I say this not knowing much about it, but you take away the sort of scaffolding, the satirical intention, the idea that you do have a perhaps moral purpose, and you mm. just have what they call nihilism. But I suppose it's just this pure CAD stuff, isn't it? Just the, 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 the pleasure the pleasure from engaging with it is to have these emotions and for it to be completely unstructured. It seems to me that that could go really, well, he's going really wrong. Like in a- We always end up on a depressed and depressing note every time we try and talk. Uh, well, I guess it's inevitable, isn't it, in a lot of ways, because you end up engaging with quite, um, not dark, but sort of depressing ideas and um, pessimism, don't you? Well, like you guys, I guess, I've taught comedy and satire a long time. And what I, what you discover is with the students is that you and they probably enjoy the comedy more, but you can talk about mm-hmm. the dark, you can talk about the satire so much more easily because it is sort of discursive and the darker, the more serious. And there's something about the intellectual life that makes us look at the serious end of things. I mean, I suppose just a positive note would be that it's a fantastic book thank you for writing it and uh will be i mean i'm i've already we've already got it in our library but uh, i'll be teaching it and i recommend everyone read it it's a cambridge elements book isn't it which is quite an interesting i yeah. kind of like that i probably I, I probably had more to say but i think everyone prefers to read the version where, where there's still more to say rather than this version where everything's been said and two chapters have been written with a view because it's got to be long enough to look like a book <laughs> Well, I really enjoyed talking to Professor Robert Fidian, did you? I did as well. I'd happily speak to him again. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really, really interesting... And the thing about contempt, I think, is so interesting, and it does tie into what we were talking about, trying to 
move between contempt, anger, and disgust. Mm. And it is more comfortable, isn't it, to feel contempt towards somebody mm. than anger and disgust? Yeah. So, it's probably still not that healthy, but... No. And I was thinking about the the way that affective responses mm. to stuff fit into that CAD triangle. Mm. You know, so often you see, like, I'm tweets, like, I'm literally crying at this news or... I literally feel sick when mm. I read about this thing. Mm. And that those are anger and disgust, aren't they? I yeah, suppose. Yeah. The angry crying and yeah. disgust, dis- disgusted vomiting. I mean, I'm sure most of the time it's a metaphor, but yeah. not literally puking on the keyboard, but yeah, it yeah. might be. And I think a lot of the sort of the emotions that are being stood up by the things we were talking about in the first part of the mm. podcast, you can see how it works as satire and it seems to serve a legi- legitimate public a purpose in sort of licensing mm. this public feeling but you know if it was a less legitimate target you could see how that could be could get really horrible um yeah. and even when it's that target you, you, there's a there's a fine line isn't there between the kinds of stuff we were talking about then you've got sort of the middling stuff of uh, like never kiss a tory yeah to kind of saying like if someone's a tory then they deserve to die and stuff like that like they're all quite close bedfellows really in this in this when you yeah there's a bit so there's um i was reading something recently about it was a it was a it was a story, so it wasn't real. But in the story, someone had made done a there's tweet. Do, God, there's no disguise in your literature lecture. Right? <laughs> yeah. Week one, term one, it's a story. That means it's not real. <laughs> yeah, but in this story, in this novel, a character does a tweet that's uh, from a some from an anonymous troll account that mm. says uh, there's something about Boris Johnson's face that makes me want to hit it with a machete. And then by the end of the novel, they get into trouble for saying that. Mm. But so that's obviously a fictional example. But you can see how that kind of utterance yeah. is, if anything, made more plausible by the kinds of things we were talking about earlier. When you hold someone in such contempt, even mm. warranted, it can tip over. And I think that's just something that's... that's a, yeah, they're dark forces, aren't they, that you're playing yeah. with? Yeah, well, it's definitely a, a useful and interesting paradigm to think about all of this stuff with, isn't it? And one that I'm sure we'll come back to. We're recording this in an extraordinarily hot recording booth yeah. in a heat wave in July. Uh-huh. Um, you're about to go on your summer holiday, aren't yep. you? Um, I'm going on my holiday shortly after that. So we're going on our holidays. And what do people do when they go on holidays? They read books. They do read books, yeah. So with that in mind, we have a proposition for listeners, don't we? Which is called the Smith & War Satirical Summer Reading Challenge. Yeah, you have to read a book in as satirical fashion as possible. <laughs> so you've got to lie on the beach and you've got to kind of read it in a really overtly sneering fashion and read passages out of it in a mocking yeah. style. And whoever sends the footage of themselves reading in the most satirical fashion will win the Satirical Summer Reading Challenge. Or send us a picture of yourself, or tag us in a picture of yourself reading in a way that satirises the fetishization of reading practices. Yeah. So, for instance, you might be on a lilo in sunglasses and, yeah. a, and a reading book just straight across your chest yeah. in a sort of um, nonchalant way. Um, but it's not that really. It's that not really was that, silly, no. wasn't it? It is, yeah, it's yeah. It's a silly joke. No. Um, yeah, what is this? Well, we've, picked, we've picked three books that have come out in the last two years which have been labelled as satirical novels mm-hmm. and we would invite you to read one or all of them. We're going to read all of them, aren't we, in, in, over the summer. Mm. In, in, that's the plan anyway. I think you have read all of them and I haven't uh, read I've read two of them. Of them. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so one of them is The Echo Chamber, a novel from 2021 by John Boyne which is uh, the fictional story of a family in the media called the Cleverly Family. The father is a TV presenter, the mother is a novelist, and the children, one of them is an influencer, one of them is a teacher, one of them is only 50, uh, only 18 years, 17 years old. 
Uh, it's only 17. Clearly that's not made explicit <laughs> no. in the text. He's 17 years old and they get cancelled. So right. apparently it's been adapted into a TV show with the working title Cancelling the Cleverlies. Right. So that's that's a novel by John Boyne, which is a satire on social media and the culture wolves. Mm-hmm. There's another one called The Plot from 2021 by someone called Jean Hanf-Karelitz, and that's a satire on the publishing industry uh, in which a jaded creative writing lecturer who teaches MFAs steals the idea of one of his late students for a novel um, but doesn't quite get away with it. Okay. It's a comedy thriller with a satirical element. Is it Jean or like Jean? I don't know. And the last one is was recommended to us by former guest in front of the podcast, Lee Stein. It's called Vladimir. It's, it's the debut novel of a writer called Julia May Jonas. And this is a satirical campus novel, but also a commentary on Me Too and its implications. Uh, but also, uh, so it's described by Esquire as a deliciously dark fable of sex and power. So you've got sex and power in the academy, you've got um, corruption in publishing, and you've got uh, some dodgy business on social media. And, and Stephen King himself, no less, says that the plot is insanely readable. Mm. It's remarkable, mm. he says. So what we'd like you to do is to read one or all of those. Feel free to let us know how you're getting on with that over the next month by tweeting us mm. at Satire No More or using the hashtag, hashtag TalkAboutSatire. Um, and what we will do is we will reconvene in August for our big summer and episode. Talk about them all. And talk about these three books. Yeah. So read the books before the episode, then you won't have to worry about spoilers. Um, and uh, two of them are quite big hardbacks, so it might be that you have to leave your sun lotion or some of the clothes <laughs> or shoes at home if you're, uh, you know, if you've got to stick to the yeah. weight limits on a flight. But um, it'll be it'll be well worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of them are on Audible as well. But for now, I think that's everything we've got to say, isn't it? Uh, what should people do if they want to? Give us a yell. Do it. Shout from wherever you are, and uh, you will have as much of a chance of getting a response. And if you email us at satirenomore at gmail.com, you can also tweet us at satirenomore. You can tag us on Instagram at talkaboutsatire. The best place to find us is in your ears. Four weeks from now. Sometimes only one of them I'm still hearing, but um, (laughs) yeah, we keep trying with that. But find us in your ears and. and obviously we'll be well into the leadership contest, won't we, by we October of who's going to be the boss of Smith & Moore Talk About Satire. Yes, we will, yeah. yeah. All right, but for now... Just sit up. Shut up. Eat our satire. Bye! Bye. Say goodbye to this monster, cause nobody wants to see Johnson no more, you all hate me cause you're bitter. But don't forget Johnson, this is what he gave you. A bit of bigotry mixed with some massacres from Oxford who eat foie gras and caviar for dinner and say the cost of living's not inflating. We can only do our job when we're intoxicated and I've made the whole workplace toxic lately. Cause you can't come in the comments if you've got a baby and I've never trusted anyone who's ovulating and I know that my MPs love the ladies, so much so they seem to get investigated. So my legacy's not the vaccine, it is poverty and austerity and supporting deporting refugees you can't afford anything thanks to me so i'll stay for a bit don't ask about it mustache will give you the slips hide in the fridge i act wacky but that's just me being savvy you should see what i get away with come here carrie so looks like there's no job for me leave me stay till halloween have a leaving do and snog the dean her life would be empty without me looks like there's no job for me don't owe anyone an apology leaving with a suitcase full of sobby b work events will be boring without me Thank <laughs> you.